Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dope Black Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Dope Black Dads podcast. My name is Umar Kankir and I'm one of the Dope Black Dads. And this in this session today, we are going to be talking to a New York number one, sorry, New York Times number one bestseller, uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Now, Dr. Kendi wrote an international bestseller, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and he's now written a follow-up book called How to Be How to Raise an Anti-Racist. And in addition to being a best-selling author and historian, he's also director of Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. He is a dope black father of a six-year-old girl, and he's currently in the UK um, uh, promoting his new book. Dr. Kendi, good afternoon. Welcome onto the podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. How are you doing this afternoon, sir? I'm okay. I'm okay. Glad that we're, we're talking. Yes, indeed. How are you? Uh, obviously, you've been in the UK for for a few days now. How, how's your stay been so far? Um, you know, my stay has been intense because <laughs> yeah. I think we're doing a lot to, to talk about how to raise an anti-racist. And, mm-hmm. But I've also tried to look around a little bit and, and, yeah. and see some sites, but uh, it's been intense. And any sites in particular that have caught your eye while you've been here? Not necessarily. No, no, fair enough. No problem. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you know, you've written this uh, powerful book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. So just for the benefit of our listeners, could you just give just a quick, uh, just a quick view of about what the book was about and what prompted you to write that in the first place? So with How to Be an Anti-Racist, I think what, what prompted me to, to write that book was a recognition that really the true opposite of of racist isn't not racist. It's it's mm-hmm. it's being anti-racist. And I I wanted people to understand that really the construct of, of not racist, like the construct of colorblindness, mm-hmm. are, are constructs of, of denial. And mm-hmm. people commonly say they are not racist when people point out the ways in which they're being racist. I also wanted people to understand that in order to eliminate the racial disparities and inequities and injustices in our society, we have to take an active role in deconstructing 
racism. And so we, we can't expect racism to go away by doing nothing. And, and so it's our responsibility to be actively anti-racist, to create an equitable and just society for us all. Mm-hmm. And what was the reaction that you found following, obviously it's a number one uh, New York Times bestseller. I mean, what, what has been people's reactions to you following the writing of this book? Oh, there's been a lot of reactions. I, I think there have been some people who were very sort of happy to receive and to read the book because it, mm-hmm. it, it we had spent, I think, as human beings, really centuries, certainly the last 50 years, talking about what we should not be, mm-hmm. as opposed to laying out precisely what we should be as, as it relates to race. Mm-hmm. And so I think for people who are looking for a guide to think about how they can be a part of this larger struggle to to deconstruct racism, I think it was, they said it was very revelatory. But then there are other people who either believe they are not racist or can't be racist, who uh, were sort of and remain steeped in denial, who of course didn't like uh, that I challenged the whole construct of not racist mm-hmm. and, and maintain we're either being racist or anti-racist. So of course they attacked. Yeah, and, and and so I mean, of course, there's, there's always going to be that. Uh, I suppose the the differing the difference of opinions that goes on um, between different sides. And and do you feel like you've had more response in terms of you know, for example, you know, white people or, or Asians who, who who maybe have had a different view on on racism and read your book and thought actually, you know, I need to challenge myself a lot more on this. Or how how how's that been for you? Yeah, I mean, there's been many, um, certainly white people and even Asian people who have read the book and reflected on their own views and the way they move in the world. And um, I, I think that that's been, you know, extremely rewarding, just as I've seen many, you know, black and brown people who've, who've done the same. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's, that was ultimately the purpose of the book. So we could think about how we can change ourselves so we can change society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, I totally get that. And, and obviously, you know, you've now written a follow-up book um, and in your new book, it kind of builds upon the groundbreaking work of your previous book. And you kind of compellingly argue that in order to build an anti-racist future, we have to teach all children about the reality of racism from an early age. Um, it, your, your book, your new book talks about why we need to tackle the work head on, not avoid seemingly difficult conversations with children because of our own discomfort. So in your book, um, which thank you very much, uh, you know, I've read this and, and had a look, it, it's kind of, it breaks it down from essentially from when a child is born up until, you know, they kind of hit adulthood. So just talk to us a little bit about what your thoughts and feelings were about breaking the book down in that way. I just think it's, you know, the way we approach young people to engage them and really teach them about racism so they can protect themselves from racism. Because if we don't, then they're going to be very vulnerable to racist ideas. They're going to be vulnerable to 
racist uh, discrimination and, and, and violence, uh, or even were they going to be vulnerable to white supremacists trying to recruit them? And so I, I think that the way we go about teaching young people is in a developmentally appropriate way. And so the way we approach a three-year-old is going to be different than the way you approach a 13-year-old. The way they're understanding and experiencing race is different. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted caregivers of children to have a, a research-based understanding of how children at every age of their development are experiencing race so that we know how to address and even counteract whatever messages they're, they're hearing you know, from society. And I think that's probably one of the strengths of the book, that, that, that caregivers are able to understand what, what science is saying about how children are understanding race at different ages. Mm. So, I mean, as an example to, to our listeners, I mean, uh, for a three-year-old, how would you say that they, their understanding of racism is compared to a 13-year-old, for example? So how would you break it down to a three-year-old versus a 13-year-old? So a three-year-old, according to studies, have developed what, what one scholar called an adult-like concept of race, specifically as relates to skin color. Mm-hmm. And so by three years old, our kids are already attaching skin color to particular qualities like who is honest or who is smart or even who is dirty. And so with a three-year-old, they are it's critically important to talk to them specifically about skin color. Mm-hmm. Because for them, race is skin color. And it is yeah. certainly when we're adults, but even more so for kids, for three-year-olds, which is one of the reasons why three-year-olds don't understand how people of widely different skin colors mm-hmm. can be of the same race. <laughs> By the time we're adults, we're, we're grouping extremely light and extremely dark black people into the same race, into the same imagined to be inferior race. But three-year-olds, they, they don't really understand that. They have a, a more um, uh, sort of uh, simple understanding of, you know, dark people are one race, white people are another race, and on and on. So with three-year-olds thereby, we have to counteract those messages. Mm-hmm. We have to teach them about the human rainbow, mm-hmm. about all the skin colors are being a part of this larger human family and that they're all equals. Mm-hmm. And we should not, just like when and I open you a book and you don't know the story in the book, yeah. so too when you see a person's face, you don't really know anything about them. No. To counteract those early messages but by the time they're 13 years old, they're able to understand racist policies. They're able to understand how those policies may be impacting them. Mm-hmm. If they're a 13 year old black kid, chances are they're experiencing multiple instances of uh, racist uh, of a racist practice per day. Mm-hmm. Chances are if they're a white 13 year old, they're being recruited by white supremacists online. And so we have to have a we have to explain to them what white supremacist ideology is. We have to explain to a, a black 13 year old that when somebody when a police officer stops you, uh, I don't want you to think that you're the problem. What's the problem is that police officer stopping you. Mm. I see. Yeah. And, and, and do you think that with um, 
with that, that it can be dependent on where a child has grown up, for example. So let's say, you know, they they live in a, you know, in a suburb in Chicago, as an example, where it's probably predominantly black area. Do you think that that experience would be very different for them compared to if they lived in a more, you know, an uptown affluent area, let's say in New York or something, and where there's less diversity? Do you think that that has an impact on their experiences? I think it it, it does have some impact on their experiences and i do think it is incumbent upon uh, their caregivers to adjust to those experiences mm-hmm. so to give an example my suspicion is that if a child is 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 if a black child is is going to school in a predominantly almost overwhelmingly white school mm-hmm. then they are likely they are less likely to be learning about African-American history than if they're in a predominantly, overwhelmingly black school. Now, the problem is there are overwhelmingly black schools in which the black students are rarely taught about black history. So there's already a low bar, uh, but, but it's even lower. You know, my suspicion is, you know, in some, though certainly not all, you know, overwhelmingly white schools. So you have to then if you have that black student in that predominantly white school, whether you're a teacher or certainly whether you're a parent, you have to overcompensate by teaching them at home uh, if you decide to keep them there. Or if you are, but if you're a black teenager in a predominantly black neighborhood or a predominantly white neighborhood, chances are you're still gonna be stopped by the police. You're still gonna be harassed by the police. It may potentially be more in the predominantly white neighborhood, but then again, there's more police in predominantly mm. black neighborhoods. So it's it's really sort of hard to know. Mm. No, that's, I think that's, it's interesting because I think some of the experiences that we see here in the UK, um, and again, I suppose with politics has been quite a hot topic for us at the moment. Um, you know, sometimes you will see that, you know, some politicians who've grown up clearly in, you know, white predominant areas, their experiences are going to be very different to those who've kind of grown up in predominantly uh, black areas and, and even kind of how they maybe interact with anti-racist or racist issues or racism itself can be very, very different. Um, obviously, you know, you, you wrote your book in 2019 and in 2020, we obviously had the murder of George Floyd and, you know, obviously your book sales surged tremendously at that point. Have you noticed any changes in society? I know we're only two years removed from from George Floyd and obviously we've, we've just come in through a pandemic, but have you seen any changes within society as a result of your writings and people maybe taking more on board of what you said? So I, I, I think that first, I think, I think as a result of um, my book, as well as you know others, mm. the term anti-racist and anti-racism, mm-hmm. you know, has become a more mainstream term. It's it's a term that many people, not just activists and scholars, you know, are using and, and understanding, and potentially even applying to their own organizations or to mm-hmm. their own work. So that certainly happened, and, and mm-hmm. in many ways, that was one of the primary goals of the book mm-hmm. was to allow people to to understand what it means to be anti-racist mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think beyond that, hopefully it, it's really on people uh, to use that understanding to then to then make change. I, I don't think, you know, I think books can change consciousness. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Consciousness can allow people to see things differently, mm-hmm. can allow people to understand structures. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's on the people themselves to challenge those structures. Hmm. And and in your view, I mean, what more do you think needs to be done to help challenge these structures to see a real change in society, in your view? I mean, where do we even begin? I mean, I, I <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that I think part of the challenge, I think, across the world is people do not because of the, the common belief in racist ideas Mm -hmm. that certain people or even nations are superior or inferior the disparities between peoples within nations or disparities between nations people see that as normal and it's very difficult for many people to, to to see the behavior of policy and even the behavior of power it's much easier for people to see the behavior of people particularly the negative behavior. And so it's easy for people to just assume that let's say black people have less because they are less. Mm. And it's much harder for them to to understand the complex web of policies that has actually led to disproportionate black poverty in nations as well as across the world. Mm. And so I think that's part of the challenge. And, And I think if we can get to a point as a human society in which if we see racial disparities between groups, we're seeing racism, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we can then start making some radical changes. Yeah, and, and I think, um, because one of the things that struck me, because I read the article that you did in The Guardian um, a couple of weeks ago regarding your uh, ex- experience when your daughter was born, uh, your wife gave birth prematurely, and some of the, the, the racism that you experienced there. I mean, just for the purpose of our for, for our listeners i mean can you just tell us a little bit about what happened then what the what the experiences you found with racism within within the kind of i suppose the health institutions when that happened 
Sure. So yeah, my 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 partner, my wife is a physician, and at this at the very hospital where she was practicing, she's actually a pediatrician, mm-hmm. uh, pediatric ER doc. And at the very hospital she was practicing, she was also getting her prenatal mm-hmm. care. And when she was about 23 and a half, 23 or so weeks pregnant, she started expressing to medical providers at her own hospital that she felt something was off. And she told one after another medical provider and they basically told her that everything's okay. There's nothing for her to worry about. And, you know, eventually after a week and a half or so of telling people Mm. Uh, that something is is wrong, calling people or even going by the labor and delivery unit and, and people just telling her everything's fine without examining her. Mm-hmm. She took it upon herself to make an appointment with her OBGYN mm-hmm. so that they can examine her. And at that appointment, they found that she was severely dilated and they suspected the baby was like coming at 23 weeks, even wow. though and I think that would have been 24 weeks and six mm-hmm. out of 10 babies in the United States do not make it if they're born at 24 weeks. Mm-hmm. And so fortunately, because she insisted on her, you know, being checked out, they were able to to, to, to sort of stop the delivery. She went on bed rest for five weeks mm-hmm. and ultimately delivered at 29 and a half weeks, which gave our baby a chance for yeah. survival. Mm-hmm. But what was striking about that situation was really the the consistent and really the systemic neglect. Mm. And it served as a metaphor for how to raise an anti-racist mm-hmm. because we commonly neglect the very people who are the most likely to be harmed by racism. Mm-hmm. We just mm-hmm. assume everything's okay mm-hmm. with children even yeah. though they are extremely vulnerable mm-hmm. to to racist messages, to obviously the harms, you know, of, of the structure of racism. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I'm calling for people to do through that metaphor is to recognize <laughs> that someone is, you know, that is to basically stop that neglect and to, mm-hmm. to really, even though it's uncomfortable for us, you know, to engage our children about, about race and racism. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I know recently there was a study done that was here in the UK where, um, you know, the experiences of black women who are pregnant. Um, and I think some of the common some of the common views and themes that come out of it is that there's this perception that black women are stronger uh, they can handle pain more. So then when they are expressing concern about things going on with their pregnancies, it can often be dismissed because people think, well, you know, we're just making something out of nothing. And, and I, I, you know, I've been in a similar situation, not, I think not to the level of that you, you, you and your uh, partner experience, but I, I recall when my firstborn was born uh, premature herself, she, uh, you know, we hadn't realized that she kind of wasn't growing properly because when she was born, she was three and a half, yeah, three pounds. Uh, when she came out, she was like six weeks premature at that stage so and I think there were times where my wife had expressed concern about you know what, what's going on we're not 
you know what, what's happening here and and almost it being dismissed and and i think you know being black uh, especially within the health system i think can be quite a a challenge and i think it's it's important uh, and it's good it says with your book kind of raising a lot of those issues and some of the challenges that are being faced and uh, you know how that can be how that can be dealt with um uh, obviously at, at the moment you are currently touring uh, you know promoting your your new your new book so i know that you've uh, you've done a, a show in in london um and you'll be off to germany as well i mean from your experiences obviously being in london i mean what what, what have you found and how, how have people reacted to your um to your book over here in, in the uk I think what I'm seeing is that I think there are many people who like people in in the United States recognize that this is another area where they need to protect their children and mm-hmm. I think they they may have already sensed, sensed that or known that or they've realized that through engaging with my work and mm-hmm. because Teachers and parents and, edu- and, and educators are, are serious about protecting children. I think they're interested in sort of learning more about how they can protect, you know, their children, just as there are other people who are in denial and who either believe that racism doesn't exist or somehow believe it does exist, but somehow it doesn't affect the most vulnerable people in our society. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's it's not something necessarily, you know, for them. Mm, yeah. And and obviously you've not been over to, to Germany, but um, do you see much difference between the, I suppose, the European experience and the American experience? Or do you feel like we're kind of in the same boat regardless of where we are in the world? I think the only difference is I have noticed, and I don't know whether this is scientifically true, but but I, I have noticed that um, some Europeans are like position the United States as the racist nation mm. and they imagine that their own nations are not racist. And despite what people of color say in those nations, despite the disparities and inequities, you know, in those nations, and they're less willing to talk about racism in their own nation than they are racism in the United States. Mm. Why, why do you think that is, though? I mean, I, I know here in the UK, they're, they're definitely, you know, there is systematic systemic racism that occurs institutional racism a lot of our big institutions have been accused over the years of being institutionally racist and i think um i suppose the black voice is starting to get more and more prominent in kind of calling it out but uh, but that's i suppose that's speaking from a uk perspective but why do you think that is in in other parts of the world why do you think people are m- more afraid to to kind of call it out I just think it's another form of denial. I mean, to me, as I've written it endlessly, the heartbeat of being racist is denial. Mm-hmm. And so people find all sorts of ways to deny that they are racist, that their nation is racist. 
Hmm. And in the United States, you have people you you have people who claiming who claim that you know to quote the former vice president that systemic racism is a left wing myth. You know, hmm. so there are people in the United States who claim systemic racism doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And there are people who claim they can't be racist because of their identity, because of their political party, because of where they live, because of who they love, because of who who are their friends. And I, I just think that this is another way for people to deny the racism in their nation or even the ways in which they're being racist is to, mm-hmm. is, is to say, well, you know, in the United States, for instance, you have Northerners who say, oh, the South is racist. <laughs> we're not racist up here, just as you have some people in Europe who say, we're not racist. They're racist over there on the other side of the Atlantic. Mm. And and do you find that that's, just, that's the case amongst black people as well in these countries? Or would you kind of say it's more, you know, white people that are, or the indigenous people in those countries saying, well, no, we can't be racist. You know, you're here. We're allowing you to work. We're allowing you to make money. We're not a racist country. I mean, what's what's your take on that? I mean, my suspicion is I've primarily heard it from from white Europeans, but I, I suspect there are people of color in in Europe who mm. who 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 think that that's the case as well. Uh, and yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if, if just because there 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 are people of color in the United States who imagine that their nation is is not racist and the real racist are people like me. You know, that's what I have to sort of face. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I suppose kind of to to round up a little bit. I mean, from from your perspective, obviously you've written two books now. What would you say are the key points that you want to make to our listeners in terms of how to raise an anti-racist and what we can do to ensure that this happens going forward? Well, there's a lot of points. I think that first, just as we child-proof our homes before our child arrives, so we start thinking about the physical environment that our child is going to enter into because we don't want that child to harm themselves or or, or to be harmed by an outlet or by a um, sharp end to a table or by, you know, liquid that's harmful Mm -hmm. or whatever. So, too, do we have to think about the racial environment we're bringing our child home to, meaning the, the the racial makeup of our neighborhoods, of the daycares, the racial makeup of the characters in the books, of the toys, uh, even the racial makeup of our friends. You know, what is our child going to see? And so if you're a white parent of a white child, you live in a, if you live in a predominantly white neighborhood, plan to take your child to a predominantly uh, white daycare, plan to allow them to watch TV in which Pretty much all the characters are white. All of almost all of the characters in books that you read to them are white. Uh, the toys that you buy them, in terms of the characters, are almost all white. You're teaching the child to value whiteness, mm. and and even a young child studies show. And so I, I think we have to be very cognizant, uh, you know, about making sure our child values equality, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to a particular uh, race and 
And then as the child gets older and a mm-hmm. child has the capacity to understand racist ideas and racist policies and, uh, and, and the structure, we have to actively talk to them and teach them mm-hmm. you know, about these topics so that they understand what's wrong and what's right. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think it's uh, obviously very, very insightful. Um, Dr. Kendi, who's the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, numerous other books that Dr. Kendi has written. Thank you so much for being on the Dope Black Dads podcast today. Um, and we look forward to hearing more of the great work that you're doing um, and, and look forward to hopefully seeing more of a change and more of a difference in society as a result of the great work that you're doing. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you thank so you. much. Thanks. Dope. Dope Black Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.